right, Trinity Church, it is great to see you both indoors, on the plaza, and online. We want to welcome you today on this 28th day of February, last day of the month. Yesterday, we celebrated my daughter Aaliyah's 21st birthday, and so very fun uh, to get to do that. And... Um, just a great day all the way around. And so we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, I just want to do a couple survey questions. How many of you, when you came in, realized uh, my old seat isn't here? Okay. <laughs> you got to look around like, they took my row away. I don't know what happened. So that was a bit of a little bit of adjustment. So thanks for being mellow with that and great. I just have this question. This is an interesting one. How many of you, is this your first Sunday with us ever indoors in this building? Raise your hand. Yeah, we've got a few, and that's because you started joining us on the lawn, and, um, and now that you're, we're kind of in this mode at least, you're able to join us in here. So we're grateful. We have said all along, our hope is to continue to provide multiple options for people to be able to gather and worship. We really don't believe that one is better than another, but we just want to keep providing places for you to gather and to be able to hear the Word of God, be able to be encouraged by His people, be able to be preoccupied with Him in worship. So we're so grateful that you're here with us today. You join us on a week that we are in a series called Beckon, the God who invites you close. If you have a Bible today, you might want to make your way to John chapter 4. If you have our app on your phone, that will help you not only maybe be able to reference the passage from our app, but it will also give you our notes for today. You'll know that when you came indoors today, for those of you that are here, we didn't have our Trinity this week to hand out. We're still in a mode where we're not doing a lot of handout stuff, but we're doing things digitally. So um, make, make that available today as well. But we're really glad and we're excited to look in this next chapter. We're going to begin a discussion of the interaction that Jesus has with a woman. A woman who is of poor reputation, both related to her ethnicity and related to her morality. And what we're going to see is the amazing way that Jesus treats her with grace and truth. Why? Because that's how Jesus came, full of both grace and truth. And we're just going to see a powerful interaction between them today, and we'll kind of walk that out together. What we'll also see is we'll see a contrast and even some things in common with a conversation that Jesus had with a, a religious Jewish leader named Nicodemus, and we'll see actually some very incredible parallel things he's telling both of them. And we'll walk that out. And what I really want to show you today is what we looked at a week ago. There is a personality in the narrative in between both of them. Nicodemus, this woman at the well, but right in the middle, John the baptizer. And the way that John saw it right, he understood who Jesus was and who he was in light of that. So that's what we're going to draw our attention to today. This week, our now what statement, approach God on his terms, acknowledging both his nature and the validity of his words. That's what we want to walk away with and process and live out this next week. Number one in your notes, Jesus crossed cultural and religious taboos in order to invite people to come close. Jesus crossed religious and cultural taboos in order to invite people to come close. We're in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman came, said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And here's a parenthetical help here. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. All right, so we're going to dial in today. Last week, we actually looked at the first part of chapter four for a little bit of context back and forth related to this whole idea of baptism. And we noted that basically what we see here is Jesus saying, it's not yet my hour. It's not yet my hour for these Jewish religious leaders to notice me and more importantly, to criticize me because that day is coming. It's just not right now. So as a result, Jesus heads up out of the area of Judea where they were, and he goes up to a place called Samaria. Now, it says interestingly, or he goes to Galilee is where he's headed, but it says this interesting phrase, he had to go through Samaria. Now, there's a lot of different ways that commentators see what that phrase means because it's really specific language. What does it mean that he had to go through Samaria? Some would say that maybe it relates to the fact that he was compelled to do so. Like you might say, I have to go shopping or whatever it might be. And, and this idea that I, I really need to do this, I must do it. Others would say maybe that there were no other ways available. And this other route that others would have gone, it wasn't available, so he had to go through. And others simply might mean that Samaria was literally in the way of where he needed to get to in Galilee. So he simply had to go through Samaria to get there. No matter what the meaning of the phrase specifically, the reason why it comes under scrutiny, though, is a consistent reason. And it's that of because of the cultural and religious prejudice that Jews had towards Samaritans. That's a big deal. And so anyone reading John's gospel from a Jewish perspective, when they came to this part, would have gone, whoa, he's going into dangerous territory. That gets lost on us 2,000 years later, so let's go back and try to understand it goes all the way back to the third or the fourth king of Israel, a king named Rehoboam. And under his rule, 10 tribes to the north break away from him. They had been a unified kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon. But Solomon's son Rehoboam comes to the throne and the kingdom splits 10 to 2. And these northern tribes, when they go up, they establish a whole lot of things that were really trying to be a fake copy, a parallel of what God had given his people down in Jerusalem. So they established a new place of worship. We'll talk about that today. And they established their own priesthood. So not Jerusalem and not the Levites, and that's a big problem. The northern kingdom later on would be defeated by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had a very interesting foreign policy. What they wanted to do is they wanted to confuse ethnicities and political parties. And so what they would do is they would take a conquered people and they would pick up part of them and they'd move them to another area with the goal that they would intermarry and they would have brand new ethnicities and racial groups that would diffuse and dilute who they were before. So almost to forget their heritage, to forget who they were, to just basically start these brand new different sorted people groups. So that was their foreign policy, and that's exactly what they did to the northern kingdom. They both exported some away and brought in people from other places all over the world to make this their home. 
So this region over time became known as Samaria. And in that time, what would ultimately happen is there was this incredible, where there was already frustration that these 10 tribes had left, now this people group had become ethnically polluted to the Jewish mind, and they had established an apostate religion. So there's all kinds of problems, there's all kinds of tensions, and this was a group of people, like we saw in what John shared with us, is that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. That's a big deal. And that's why when Jesus gives this parable in a different place of the good Samaritan, you have to realize that to the Jewish mind, there was no such thing. Okay, you don't put good in front of the word Samaritan. So it was a plot twist when Jesus is sharing this parable and people are like, wait a second, the Samaritan's the good guy? That would have blown them away. So we have to kind of get into those shoes a little bit. And the reality is it's not hard for us to do that. It's not hard for us to do that 2,000 years later. It might not be because you're Jewish and you're concerned about Samaritans in the north, but it does relate to followers of other religions who brand people as either infidels or extremists, or people groups that some like to blame for their problems. It's been amazing. A thing that has not been touched on very much is how Asians in our country in America have been so poorly treated in this last year being seen to be the blame for a virus that has affected the world, but Americans in, or Asians in America had nothing to do with it. That can easily happen. Parts of town that some don't want to visit because they know who lives there, these are not ancient problems that people dealt with 2,000 years ago. They're current ones, and we still deal with them today. Take a look at a map and you'll be able to see a little bit what I'm talking about. When you note here, you'll note Jesus was in the area down in Judea, so Jerusalem might have been around where Jesus was. You'll note that he wants to go up to Nazareth, which is up in Galilee. So again, he had to go through Samaria related to at least the most direct route. But you'll notice the big swing all the way around that people would generally take if they were going from down in Judea up to Galilee is they'd swing all the way around across the Jordan River twice just so they didn't have to go through Samaria. The issue that I don't want to skip over today that's really important for us, Jesus didn't have a group who was off limits. Jesus, our Savior, the one we look to, the one we model ourselves after, the ones that we say are we are his disciples, his followers, Jesus, our leader, didn't have people who were off limits. He actually went looking for those who were culturally and religiously taboo for his day. Look in your notes. Simple question, who is on the wrong side of the tracks in your world? Who is on the wrong side of the tracks in your world? It is a great question to honestly evaluate and ask yourself. Because I think we'd be a little bit foolish and a little bit untrue if we'd say, well, there's nobody, Todd. Well, number one, you're not answering to me. That's not the issue. But more importantly, asking yourself, God, are there people who are off limits to me? Because if I'm going to be more and more like Jesus, that group needs to become less and less all the way down to zero. Jesus's humanity is evident, by the way, in this journey. It says he was tired. And we've talked about this a little bit through our study in John, is that Jesus was 100% God, 100% human. So we don't want to make him to be mostly God and a little bit human, almost as though he's faking it. He got tired, he got thirsty, and he sat down at a well when normally no one would be there in the heat of the day, right at noon. When a Samaritan woman comes to the well, she is stunned that Jesus, a Jewish man, would even talk to her or ask her for a favor, knowing that most Jewish men would have completely ignored her or altogether got up and moved because she was in the vicinity. 
John gives us that commentary so we can understand it. Remember, John's audience was not a Jewish audience, so people like us who wouldn't have known about the strife between Jews and Gentiles. And it helps us know that this group was out of bounds for most Jews, but obviously not for Jesus. Then Jesus, as we'll see throughout this conversation, he begins to reveal his identity. What you're going to see today is Jesus is going to give her more and more like snapshots completing a bigger picture. He's going to share with her a little bit at a time about who he is, what he came to bring, and we're going to see the way she responds to it. And his basic first comment is simply this, lady, you don't know who you're talking to because if you did, I'm asking you for water, but if you understood who you were talking to, you'd be the one asking me, and not just for a drink, but for living water, water that you don't have to keep coming back to get more and more. We're going to see this imagery of living water more in today's passage and later in John's gospel, but I want to remind you that we've already seen this once before, and I want to show you some parallels today between Jesus' conversation with a religious leader and Jesus' conversation with an irreligious woman at the well. We don't even know her name. This guy's name's Nicodemus. She's unknown to us by name. But remember what Jesus told him, you must be born of water and the Spirit. So he's talked about this concept of water and what it does already. And we're going to see some more parallels in the conversation today. But I first want you to note at least the incredible contrast between these two people. Look in your notes. John may intend a contrast between the woman of this narrative and Nicodemus of chapter 3. He was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, and a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And love this line, and both needed Jesus. Amen. Number two in your notes, Jesus interacted with people full of both grace and truth. Jesus interacted with people full of both grace and truth. I want you to see this wonderful combination. I want you to think about, by the way, we've said this before, when we try to get our arms around this idea, we tend to vacillate. We tend to be a people who are more interested in grace or more interested in truth. And whenever we do that, we're living out of balance, the kind of way that Jesus came, embracing and holding on to both at the same time. Look at this next conversation, John chapter four, verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the, the well and drank from it himself as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone drinks this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water in the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a, like in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. That got awkward, right? I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> All right, let's back it up a little bit. So Jesus knows a whole lot about this woman, and we'll, we'll get there in just a second. But let's go back to the, this part. So he, he lastly said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask him. 
for water. And she goes, and she's looking at him. He's a tired guy sitting at a well. And she's like, where are you going to get a bucket to draw water from? Where is this spring of water? Do you have a shovel to start digging? I don't even know what you're talking about. And are you saying with your kind of Jewish snobbery that you are somehow better than our father, note the tense, than our father Jacob who gave us this well in the first place? So all these questions that she has, and and at the sum of them what you can understand is that her response is limited to the physical world. What she can see, taste, touch, smell, and hear, that's the only kind of way she's able to process what he's just talked about. She's unable to understand the spiritual dimension of what Jesus is talking about. But I want you to note this. She would not, in John's gospel alone, she would not be the first to not understand Nicodemus, a guy who had the former covenant, the Old Testament, memorized backwards and forwards, when Jesus is talking to him about the need to be born again, he's like, how do you crawl back up into your mom? Right over the top. Chapter two, when Jesus is talking to religious leaders and he's telling them that this temple is going to be torn down and then raised again in three days, all they can think of is the building they're standing in front of and not beginning to understand he's talking about his body. And it seems as though every single parable that Jesus gives when he's talking about things that he's around, like seed or water or farmers or vines, It goes right over the top of people's heads and they have no clue what he's talking about. The spiritual connection is lost. So I want you to note, she would by far not be the first person who doesn't understand that Jesus is saying much more than what he's saying. That there's a whole dynamic, a whole nother spiritual world that they're not in tune with and therefore when Jesus talks about that world, they have no context for it. But I want you to note this in all these examples We're not talking about people who are dumb. We're not talking about people who are not intelligent. We're simply talking about people who, as of yet, don't get it. It reminds me of one of my favorite ads that are going on right now. Take a look at this commercial and you'll appreciate it. All right, everyone, we made it. My job is to help new homeowners who have turned into their parents. I'm having a big lunch and then just a snack for dinner. So we're using a speakerphone in this store. Is that a good idea? One of the ways I do that is to get them out of the home. You're looking for a grout brush. Garth, did he ask for your help? No. 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 We all see it. We all see it. He has blue hair. Okay. Blue. Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. Keep it coming. You don't know him. (laughs) I love Dr. Rick, and uh, those commercials make me laugh so much. People who just don't get it, right? But, But I want you to understand this. It's even more than that. It's not even a sense of it just goes over my head. Watch this. That the Bible says that prior to you coming in contact with God's spirit given to you when you place your faith in him, look in your notes, you too were unresponsive to spiritual things altogether. It wasn't because you couldn't understand the language, it was because you were dead. 
It's not even a sense of I can't understand the language. It's because you're spiritually dead upon arrival. All of us are. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So what we're talking about is, is not people who are unintelligent, or foolish, we're talking about people who simply don't have a capacity yet to understand spiritual truth because they have not yet been reborn. They don't have the reality of God's spirit in them to be able to decipher, to make sense of spiritual truth. This woman is no different than the others that we've seen so far. Jesus then gives her more revelation. Jesus gives her more light about what he's talking about. He says, I'm talking about a completely different type of water, a kind that doesn't leave you thirsty again. And this kind of water is so different that it actually becomes a spring. So imagine that. It's not just a glass that contains water. You drink it and it's magic. It's something that, that actually becomes a well, a spring living inside of you that wells up into eternal life. The prophet Jeremiah actually had said something about this a few hundred years before. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, look at these powerful words. My people have committed two sins. This is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God to the people. My people have committed two sins. First off, they have forsaken me, and look how God describes himself, the spring of living water. And the second thing they've done, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Two areas of failure that God's people engage. They neglected, they denied, they rejected God, the source of this living water, and they went their own way, dug their own wells, created cisterns, but they were broken and they couldn't hold the water itself. Later in John's gospel, this whole topic of living water is going to come up again, where the whole focal point of that part of John 7 is going to be about that, and we'll get there soon. But I want to share this with you because this is powerful. John, remember, John keeps adding commentary to help us understand some things, and, and he's seen it all. He's writing decades after Jesus' ministry, so he's filling in some gaps for us. Look what he says in John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, we just read it from Jeremiah uh, chapter two, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Look at now, this is now John's commentary. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. That's powerful. So every time we're seeing Jesus talk about living water, we're talking about having the indwelling presence of God himself, the spirit of God within us. That's a correlation. That's the parallel of what that means. So obviously this woman isn't there yet, but Jesus is offering this to her. And what does she understand all this to mean? Yes! Give me water that I don't have to keep coming back to this God-forsaken well in the middle of the heat of the day, drawing out a bucket's worth and bringing it back so we can have something to drink. Same as before. Her only context is that of physical water that you can pull from a well, put in a bucket, and bring home. And this is interesting. What does Jesus do next? He's been revealing himself to her, but now he stops now he stops and he asks her to reveal something about herself. 
He tells her to go get your husband and let's talk some more. Now, I want you to see that. I think that this directive that he gives to her is both appropriate and strategic. Number one, I want you to catch how this is very appropriate. Jesus, a Jewish religious leader, not married, is having a conversation with a woman at a well, and he is sharing with her. He's actually giving her, inviting her into something It is completely appropriate that he wouldn't go any further before he says, this really should be in the context of your marriage. Not just me talking to you, but why don't you bring your husband back and we can talk further. So it was very appropriate that Jesus would have done this, where sometimes we want to go, Jesus goes for the jugular. (laughs) I, I think Jesus is just being like, this actually makes sense that we would have your husband here as well to talk about this. So it doesn't look inappropriate or a husband doesn't go, what are you doing talking to my wife? But the other reason is very strategic, because Jesus knows something about this woman that she has no idea. You'll note her response. Go bring back your husband. I'm not married. Jesus says, you're right. I love this grace and truth. Doesn't pound, doesn't start going off on her, just goes, you're right. You've been married five times, and the man you're with now is not your husband. People ask, how could Jesus have known that? Well, he could have known it because he's God. But I want to throw this out to you, too. I absolutely believe that. But I think there might have been another way he could have known that. Jesus is out at the well in the middle of the day. We don't know how long he'd been sitting there. Were there a group of women at the well prior? And as they see this woman coming, oh, there she is. Have you heard the tea on her? Nobody wants to be around her. She's an outcast. Which husband is she on now? That kind of discussion. Either way, however Jesus found out this information, I want you to see this. He he demands that it come into the light. He loves her. He's demonstrating great patience, talking to her about things that she's not getting. He's inviting her to come close. But one thing that he absolutely believes is essential in this conversation is that the reality of where she has been trying to find water, where she's been trying to find life, she has come up short time and time and time and time and time, and here's number six, and time again. We talked a couple of weeks ago that the biggest difference between a believer and an unbeliever is found in how they respond to the light. I loved when we looked at this quote, and we talked about the idea that it's not so much the idea of people who are less sinful, people who are more moral, it's none of that business. When you're introduced to the truth, how do you respond? And in John chapter three, John says that people will will respond one of two ways. They will either shrink back, hide in the shadows, and not, quote, want to be found out, or they'll step into the light, and they'll deal with reality. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. 
Simple question, what would this woman do after being confronted about these five former marriages and being with someone now who she's not married to? Well, let's find out. Number three in your notes, Jesus clearly communicated that the essence of worship is according to the spirit and grounded in the truth. Jesus clearly communicated that the essence of worship is, is according to the spirit and grounded in the truth. Chapter four, verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place that we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth, or in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in, in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one who am speaking to you, am he. So powerful. Just like us, the conversation turns whenever God confronts us on our personal sin, when Jesus brings up about this woman's relationships, she is very quick to deflect. This would have been a first century version of, how about them Dodgers? Let's just not, let's change the subject, right? Let's talk about basically anything else. And here's what's wild to me. So far in the conversation, they've said nothing religious. Jesus is talking about spiritual things that are going right over her head, but she hasn't said a word about anything of a religious nature. When Jesus confronts her, brings up the truth about this situation, she is quick to want to start talking religion. Oh, well, you Jews think that we ought to worship here. We believe we ought to worship there. And, and that's where she wants to go. And it's such a mind-bending thing to go, lady, we haven't talked about religious things this whole time. And now all of a sudden, you become someone who really wants to be, quote, religious all of a sudden. But you know what's funny? I was thinking about it. That's happened to you and me many times. You've been in a conversation maybe with someone you're just getting to know. Maybe it's on a flight or maybe it's in line somewhere or whatever it may be. And you're getting to know them and partway into the conversation it comes up that you're a Christian. And then all of a sudden the person kind of, you can tell there's a different change in body language, a tone changes, and then some things like this come out in very broken kind of awkward ways. Um, I, I, read the, I read the Pope is coming out to LA next month. Um, I used to go to church with my grandma when I was a, a kid. Um, I'm really sorry about my use of language a few minutes ago. That happens all the time. And so it's trying to find some kind of common ground, trying to find some sort of sense of, of going, oh, I see you're a religious person. I don't really know what to talk about, so I'm just going to try to connect a dot somewhere. And by the way, you do it all the time with things that have nothing to do with your walk with the Lord. You might be in line somewhere and you realize that who you're talking to is a, an oral hygienist from a dentist's office. And in, you kind of pause and you think about it and you go, you know, I'm really trying to floss more. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, 
This isn't confession, you know, it's fine. So we do this all the time. This isn't un unreal that this would happen, but this is what happens in the conversation. But upon Jesus indicating that he knows the intimate kinds of details about her life, she who has not seemed to understand an iota of the spiritual dynamic of the conversation so far, she now wants to talk about religious differences. Specifically note, she doesn't actually call Jesus a religious person, she calls him a prophet. She, she realizes there's something to this guy. He, does, he should not know those things about me. A prophet means a mouthpiece for God, one who speaks on behalf of God, as though that was something she thought was just between her and God, and now someone who is here on his behalf knows something about her. Her references to the two valued places of worship, Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans and Jerusalem for the Jews, the Samaritans, as I did some study last week, I found it interesting and it totally makes sense. They would value the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, but they would give no credence to anything after Deuteronomy. That had no binding on them because it said things like, worship the Lord your God in Jerusalem. But if you go back, you'll actually know in Deuteronomy 12 that Jerusalem is not noted at that time because it hasn't been established. Look what Moses tells all the people. But you are to seek the place your Lord, your God, will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. They're just take as, well, God never said Jerusalem in the first five books, therefore we can do our own thing. And that gave them the, the credence to be able to do that. Well, notice in this religious conversation that she wants to bring up, notice that Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't continue with an impersonal debate about where we ought to worship Yahweh, as though that's even been an issue up until now in this conversation. But he tells her what a prophet should, that a time is coming and has now arrived. We're actually in this age right now, he says, when the where of worship will not be important and the how will be completely overhauled. When true worshipers will worship, note the use of language. He didn't say when true worshipers will worship Yahweh. He says when true worshipers will worship the Father. Not your father, Jacob. Not my father, Abraham. No, the Father. They will worship the Father and they'll do that in spirit, in the spirit and in truth. Jesus uses the adjective and the noun of the same Greek word to describe both the nature of worshipers, their true worshipers, as well as the content of their worship in truth. And the next phrase, in the spirit, will be further amplified in the next verse when Jesus clarifies that worshipers worship according to the spirit, to the spirit, because God is spirit. There's a need for that elemental consistency and that it's essential. But I think that these words beckon back again, like we've said, to the words that Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter three. What do he say? We said it earlier today. You must be born of water and the spirit. You must be born of water and the spirit. We made much of that a couple weeks ago about the Old Testament references. But here is Jesus bringing this up again. Jesus is saying the same thing to her. You must be born anew of the Spirit. We're all spiritually dead otherwise. And you must worship according to the truth of the revelation that he gives. Remember John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word, the revelation of God. 
And note that Jesus is modeling what he says the Father does. Watch this. He's actually modeling what he goes on to say what the Father does. The Father seeks. The Father goes out and finds those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to sit down at the well. Jesus had to talk to a woman that no Jew would have talked to. He models the very words. He says, this is how the Father works. I and the Father are one. This is how I then work. This Greek word translated as seeks means to seek by inquiring, to search, to get to the bottom of a matter, to pursue. And I, I want to say to you, isn't it powerful to think about the fact of what God had to do to find you? Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was going to sit at a well and was going to talk to a woman who needed the truth of the great news of Jesus, the great news of Messiah. The Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. The Father has pursued you. Even if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, you're here hearing about a story that in some ways you can probably relate with. He's pursuing you. He's not waiting for you to figure it out and come to him. He is looking for you. And I just think that is so profound. Tinney, he brings up another good point related to this statement that Jesus just made that God is spirit. Look what he says. God is spirit carries, carries one of four descriptions of God found in the New Testament. The other three are God is light. We already saw that in John 1. God is love from 1 John, and God is a consuming fire from Hebrews chapter 12. So we see these descriptors. This is what God is like. God is spirit. God is love. God is light. God is a consuming fire. And this part of our passage today also surfaces one of those mega themes we saw back in John 1, the idea of truth. Truth, they must worship in spirit and in truth from John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier today this, I think there's almost this interesting chasm or chiasm of personalities. In John chapter 3, Jesus invites Nicodemus to come close. Nicodemus, we've said it earlier today, is this learned, esteemed leader of the Jews. And Nicodemus doesn't get it in that moment, in that conversation. Today we see Jesus meeting with a woman at a well who, is, who could not be more, literally more different than Nicodemus. And likewise, in this initial conversation, doesn't seem to get it. But right in the valley, right in the middle of these two narratives is what we looked at last week where John the baptizer, when his own disciples were saying, you gotta do something about this Jesus guy, more people are going to see him than you, he says that's exactly how it ought to be. I came that I would decrease and he would increase. And I just want to show you this beautiful contrast and comparison of these three personalities and how two people, one very religious, very irreligious, goes right over their heads. But John understood this is who Jesus is and this is who I am as a result. Upon hearing the debate, 
debating the location of Yahweh worship wasn't any longer important. She deflects once more and says that she's awaiting Messiah, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to them. Maybe this is another way of saying it. Rabbi, you're saying some really interesting things today, but I'm waiting for Messiah, because someday down the line, when he comes, he's going to make it all clear. And then Jesus completes this revelation of his identity. What he's been doing is giving her a little bit more at a time. And he finally makes it as crystal clear as you can get. In the original Greek, I am. I am. I find it incredibly beautiful and incredibly fascinating that the first time that Jesus completely reveals his true identity is to a Samaritan woman at the well. Not to Nicodemus, the Jewish religious leader, not to the scribes and Pharisees out in front of the temple, chapter two, but to this woman, I am he. That truth is gonna change everything, not only for her, but for the people in her relational world who she goes back to tell about this conversation with the Messiah. I really want you to come back next week and hear how that goes. And that's when we'll pick it up. So for this week, approach God on his terms, acknowledging both his nature and the validity of his words. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. And as we look at this encounter today and try to, try to internalize it a little bit, try to understand what that looks like for us, what that looks like in our relationship with you, what that looks like in the relationship that we have with other people, other people who don't have the spirit of God yet, who are spiritually dead and trying to understand spiritual truth. Father, what we say, what they need, what we needed and what we keep needing is for you to wake us up, for you to quicken us. And Father, we are so just grateful hearing Jesus's kind, loving truthful responses to her and just the fact that he would say, I am the one you think you've been looking for, the one that maybe is way down the line for you. He's sitting right here. Jesus, I'm grateful that you are sitting right here with us today as well. You have made yourself completely known and we know that no one can come to you unless you draw them. No one can come to you unless you are quickening and waking them up spiritually because dead people don't respond to anything. But my prayer is that you've been quickening, you've been waking people up this week so that even today, whether it be indoors or out on the plaza or online, that there would be someone today who would say, Jesus, you came to do this for me. I want that living water that wells up into eternal life. And the good news is if that's where you're at today and you're ready to make that decision, it begins by saying, A, I admit. I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior. I admit that I'm broken and that I cannot make myself good enough for God. B, I believe. I believe that this Jesus who is so kind and loving and patient with this woman, I believe he is who he said he was, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who would come and make all things new. And see, I choose. I choose to put my confidence, my faith, my trust in what Jesus did for me at the cross and the empty tomb, and I want to live my life following after his example. You can make that decision right here and right now. My prayer 
is that you wouldn't let another day go by until you do. Father, we are so grateful that you keep finding a way. You keep finding a way to communicate yourself, to connect with us, to bring us to life. And so today as we close this service and we sing the praises of the fact that you indeed are the way maker, God, would you have our full attention today? We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.